You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with Ian Davidson, who is using Phoenix and Elixir to power a site that lets you easily share small amounts of data. Ian, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for welcoming me. Yeah, I built textdb.dev. It's a really simple way to share data for fun projects for mainly developers, but other people could use it as well. Very cool. Yeah, I remember seeing this one on Hacker News a couple of days ago, and it was uh, trending pretty hard on the front page. Yeah, that was extremely exciting. So I actually submitted it to Hacker News the previous day, but there were some bugs in production, so it didn't do so well that time. But after I resubmitted it nice and early in the morning, which seems to be like an easier way to get stuff trending on Hacker News, it did fantastically and people seemed really happy with it. Yeah, I noticed like right away it had like, I don't know, like 150 stars on GitHub in, I don't know, like an hour or two or something. Yeah, that was incredible as well. And then it was really fun seeing it kind of uh, do the loop across the internet where like it hit that number one on Hacker News. And then it was simultaneously like reposted to Product Hunt and Reddit and Someone even already wrote a review of it, which was really funny. Right. So this site is written with uh, Phoenix and Elixir. So do you just want to give us maybe like a TLDR on your background in terms of like programming knowledge? Uh, Sure. So the TLDR is I've worked mostly at startups for about a decade. I'm familiar with a couple of different languages, but Phoenix and Elixir is definitely my go-to for like the small, fun side project stuff. Right. So what was your motivation to use that in the end? So the reason I chose Phoenix is a while ago, I built a kind of bus time lookup service and it performed extremely well. The thing with Elixir and Phoenix that's always impressed me is the efficiency of it actually running and the fact that it's kind of multi-core by default. Anything I built with Phoenix, I've never seen the service actually go down where it's just sort of you can really just build it and forget it. Right. Yeah, that's definitely a, a nice thing to have. Now, we're not going to get into like your hosting stuff just yet. But for now, do you want to go over maybe some metrics about like what type of traffic you've gotten on the homepage, especially when it was trending on all those sites? Oh, yeah. Um, so the traffic, unfortunately, I didn't have analytics because I wanted to avoid using any sort of third party services. So I'm not quite sure what the traffic was when it hit the homepage, by, but I can estimate it at around 10,000 page views just by like CPU usage and what it's doing now. Um, but now that I've actually added some metrics, we're doing about 2,000 page views a day. So not a crazy high number, but it's, it's decent. Yeah, definitely. It's cool to see that this site kind of just came out of nowhere, popped up, handled that traffic, I guess, without breaking a sweat. Yeah, it handled it perfectly. It was uh, the maximum CPU usage was only, I think, 4%. Yeah, that's awesome. And it was pretty cool. Like, funny enough, like when I went to the site, I kind of just immediately went to view the source code because I just wanted to see, you know, after it did that real time update, I'm like, huh, is this actually using live view? And then I saw it right there. There was a little attribute on an HTML element that said it was using uh, Phoenix live view. So do you want to maybe go into why you decided to use that? 
Um, so I really wanted to try out Live View because I read about it a while ago and it seemed like a really impressive project for making kind of a more interactive site, but without having to write any JavaScript. And, uh, yeah, it seems to be production ready, at least for this. Right. Yeah. So maybe you can get into a little details of like how the site works. Like when I tried it out, I just curled you know, a specific URL that you had on the homepage. And then like immediately that data ended up just being live updated onto the, the endpoint when I had it in a browser opened at the same time. Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely my favorite part of it where it's just like the idea behind the site is really simple, but then it has that like one neat thing it does where it just instantly updates whenever you're watching data, which is pretty cool. Um, so whenever you actually curl some data to the site, that's the only time it actually writes that information to a file. So it just stores a location in a Postgres. And whenever you request that, it just reads from the file system. So nothing's actually like the big data is not stored in Postgres. It's keeping a super light, just sort of bookkeeping. Okay. When you say like the big data, though, you mean like whatever payload that the person curls over that's being saved on disk in a file, not in the database? Right, exactly. Right, that's an interesting strategy. What made you go with that in the end instead of just saving that straight up into like a table with Postgres? Um, I was kind of worried about the file size where it's like I haven't used Postgres for storing, I don't know, like a big JSON blob or something. So I wasn't sure how the performance would be and using just the file system seemed like the easiest way to do it. Right, can't go wrong with the file system. I'm pretty sure Hacker News itself all of the comments and all the submissions are just flat files on disk. Don't quote me on that, but that's what I've read in the past. Huh, that's pretty cool. So when it comes to using a live view, are you using the master branch off of GitHub or the latest stable release? I'm using the latest stable release. Okay. So what was the experience like developing that, by the way? Like if this was your first crack at a live view app, was it like hard to get into or like what types of, you know, interesting problems did you have to solve to get this to all the work in the end? So it was pretty difficult to get it working correctly. I almost gave up on using Phoenix or LiveView, but you know, I I didn't want to be defeated by it. So some of the problems I ran into were mostly just around like the templating system and sort of uh, like how to actually implement the LiveView. If I were to do it again, Phoenix actually comes with a generator for new live apps. And I probably should just use that from the beginning. Right. So I didn't look at the source code that much for your application, but is the routing done with live view as well? Or you is is it or is it just like a tiny little snippet of where that little update happens on the page? Um the live view is just a tiny little snippet. It's using the usual Phoenix router. So like the home page is pretty much all static and that's just uh templated in with like the UUID it gives you. And then uh, the only live view part of it is that data view. Right. Did you end up using a live component for that or something else? Because that's always like the confusing part. At least it was for me. It's like, well, there's like, you know, 11,000 different ways to insert the live view stuff into your site. It's a, that's just a live page. So it's not a component or anything. That entire page is just handled by uh, live view. Okay. By the way, uh, side question here. When it comes to those UUIDs that get generated, basically those become the URLs, I noticed you can just put in whatever you want, like, you know, slash foo, and like that's a valid thing. That was that was intentional because I thought, who knows how people could use this thing, and I thought it was kind of fun. 
Right. Yeah, no, I thought it was really cool because it's almost like you can kind of name your slugs now, like whatever you want. But does, does that also mean like if you did slash foo and you write something there, someone else from a different machine could then write to that? Or is it somehow like locked by your IP address or how, do, how does that work? Yeah, there's uh, there's not locking or anything or any kind of authentication because the goal was really just like put data here and you can access it from anywhere. And also anyone with this link can edit it. What I ended up doing is on Hacker News, people were also concerned about the same thing where it's like, what, so anyone can edit this? So what I ended up building was uh, read-only APIs. You basically, it takes a hash of the UUID and then you can give that to like clients and they won't be able to write to the data. They'll just be able to read it. Very cool. So speaking of that, like, you know, getting feedback about this application, what features did you end up adding within a couple of days between when it was trending and I guess today? Um, so the two features I've added were the read-only links. Also based on that feedback, I made it open source and I added uh, analytics just, you know, for my own purposes where it's just a really basic counter of like how many people came to this page. But I'll probably create like an analytics dashboard just for other people. So if they're curious, they can look and see. Right. So have you thought about maybe this would be maybe a little bit too much to do, but could be also interesting, like using live dashboard and making that public. So just anyone can see that. Yeah, I wanted to I wanted to make that public, but I couldn't tell like what the security concerns were with it. Where it's like, they seem to recommend not allowing it uh, in production or like, you know, keeping it open in production. But I didn't see any like information leaking that, you know, could be bad. Right. So right now you just have that, I guess, like a like a count column in the database or whatever for each one. Yeah, pretty much. It's not even that advanced. It's more like uh, it's not even per data, although that's a really good idea is like per data view analytics or, you know, if people are curious to see if people were actually reading their uh, data or writing. Yeah, that could be kind of neat because it's also like if you were using that for something that you might be using, like, I don't even know, like, what are some use cases that people are actually using this for? Um, I'm not sure. I haven't actually looked at any data or seen anything on Hacker News. Someone said they were going to use it for syncing framer prototypes, which is a cool use case I hadn't even considered. And then like, I personally build it because I just want to use it to sync a list of names for a mob programming tool that we built. Okay. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Do you want to go into the details about that one? Because it sounds like maybe like that was the motivation for creating the app in the end, right? Yeah, exactly. So the mob programming tool is, uh, it just keeps track of like who's currently in the mob and then it times out after 10 minutes and then it calls the next person saying it's their turn. But right now we don't have like a database for syncing that information. So this is pretty much perfect for that. Right. So swinging back to the app itself, like how it's architected, is this then just a single monolithic app in a single Git repo? Exactly. Okay. Do you have things broken out into using some Phoenix features like contacts and whatnot or no? Um, it's not really using anything advanced from Phoenix besides the live view and pub sub, which made it really easy to do uh, the live updates instantly. Okay. Do you want to go into details about that then? Like, yeah. how is pub sub being used? So the way the live view actually gets updated instantly is whenever 
uh, someone posts to the right endpoint, it publishes to a topic for that data, which the live view is subscribed to, and then it just re-injects the data. And that worked out incredibly simply. Yeah, very cool. I actually do not have that much experience using PubSub, but it sounds very similar. And I don't know if you watched this video, the one where Chris McCord made that uh, like little little Twitter clone using Live View and PubSub. Did you watch that one? Oh, I actually haven't seen that, but I can only imagine how quickly you could get that done, like probably two hours or something. Yeah, I think it was like a 15 or 20 minute video. I'll, I'll link it in the show notes. Oh, cool. So going back to your app, though, uh, roughly, give or take, like how many lines of code did it take to write this and how long did it take you to do it? So the lines of code, it's about 900 lines of code across 25 files, and that's really everything. It took me about a week to build, which is definitely probably the fastest I've ever built anything. <laughs> right. It also sounds like, you know, you were also learning live view from scratch, essentially, too, right? So it wasn't like you've been using that for 100 years beforehand, and it was all in memory. Yeah, no, I've never used a live view before this, but the documentation was pretty good, and there are some very helpful Stack Overflow answers. Right. Did you end up going through any other external like learning resources or whatever, like YouTube videos or... I think there's maybe like a live view free course from somewhere I've seen somewhere. No, honestly, the getting started guide for the live page views was enough. Okay. So going back to maybe some other components of the app, you mentioned that the main page, you're just using regular Phoenix controllers. They're not live view. Is this then just like a standard server render templates then using EEX? Like it's not an API backend. Yeah, exactly. Everything's uh, EEX rendered. There's no JavaScript that I had to write. Right. Definitely the joys of using LiveView there. Minimal to no JavaScript is uh, is good for me as well. I don't know if you're a big fan of JavaScript, but uh, speaking of JavaScript there, did you end up using Webpack in the end to manage your style sheets, maybe SAS to CSS or something? Um, the styling was actually so minimalistic that I just wrote it all in one CSS file, so I didn't have to use a Webpack for managing that stuff. Yeah, that is definitely nice if you can get away with that. Just a single file and you're done. Did you think about running that through some type of like minification program as like part of a build tool or no? Just for that CSS? Um, no, I haven't, but I really should. Like that'll probably be something I do this week is the uh, like compression. Right now there's no gzip on or anything like that. So I think I could actually make this site much, much faster. If, like you suggested, minifying the CSS and then also turning on uh, zipping. Right. So maybe now we can talk a little bit about the rest of your tech stack here. Like, do you have Nginx sitting in front of the Cowboy server or do you just have Cowboy serving that directly? So Nginx is in front of it, but it's just doing some very basic uh, header rewrites and proxying. Right. Any type of caching of your CSS and stuff or no? Um, there's no caching, I don't think, besides whatever Phoenix does by default. And that's apparently more than fast enough. We didn't really get a chance to talk about this one, but like, what type of response times were you getting if you if you noticed in the logs after you turned them on? Um, it looks like most of the response times are under a second for like a complete page load or request. I think the curl responses are even faster than that, where it's like two to three hundred milliseconds. I think. Now, when it comes to Nginx, do you also have uh, that set up with some type of way to deal with SSL, like using Let's Encrypt, or no? Oh, yeah, I actually, uh, I use the, I think it's called the EncryptBot or something. Oh, CertBot? Yeah, CertBot. I love CertBot. That thing is amazing. So yeah, I use CertBot to set up 
Nginx to handle the SSL stuff. Okay. So you mentioned also before that you are using Postgres to you know, save a couple of things here and there. Is there anything that we're missing about your tech stack here? Like, do you happen to use Docker maybe in development and production or either or? No, that's really the entire tech stack is just Nginx, Phoenix, and Postgres. Okay. So when it comes to developing this, then, do you use any tools to help you manage what version of Elixir that you're using, like ASDF or something else? What is ASDF, though? I haven't heard of that. Uh, it's just like a general purpose tool that you can use to help you manage different versions of different programming runtimes. So like if you want to work with Elixir, I don't know, 1.10 on this project, but then like a year from now, you have another project using Elixir 1.14, if it happens to exist, mm. you can have those two versions of Elixir live on your system together. But like project A will use the old one and, you know, project B will use the new one. Like you get to pick basically. Oh, that's pretty nice. I also, doesn't Mix control the Elixir version, or at least I think put limits on it? Yeah, I think there is something you can put in your Mix file to be like, hey, you have to have at least Elixir version X, Yeah, something like that. So as for the rest of your tech stack, we went over that. Do you want to maybe talk about where this is hosted? Oh, definitely. Um, so everything's hosted on DigitalOcean, uh, which I chose because... I didn't feel like giving more money to AWS and I wanted to see what the competition was like. And so far, DigitalOcean has been pretty fantastic. Well, yeah, was this uh, the first time you've ever used them? Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome to hear. I've been using them for, uh, I don't even know, five, six years now. Very, very uh, happy with them. And they're not like a sponsor of the podcast or anything like that. I just, I just happen to use them and they never let me down. Yeah, I, I, I definitely pick DigitalOcean again, like probably for the rest of my side projects I'll keep using them. Right. So when it came to the server, which uh, specs did you end up going with? Was it like the one gig of memory with one CPU core, like the $5 a month one? Or did you go for something a little bit more beefier? I went for something a little bit beefier, but still pretty small. It's the $20 a month one, which is where they V CPUs, virtual CPUs with four gigs of RAM. Right. Yeah, that is definitely a healthy amount. And uh, I think you mentioned before, like CPU load was like 4% totally, even during your biggest spikes. Yeah, it was only uh, that was the absolute maximum I've seen so far is 4% CPU. Right. What about the memory? Does that just use as much as it can or has it been hovering at something that's not maxed out? It's uh, it, it's hovering around three gigs out of the four, but I think that's pretty good considering everything's running on one server, like the database and the application and Nginx. Right. And it's also one of those things where maybe the Beam VM is using that much memory. It's like, well, suddenly, like what happens if you get 150,000 requests in one day? Like it may just handle that without even breaking a sweat, you know? Yeah, I would be very excited to see if this uh, site kind of keeps growing. And if we ever hit usage numbers like that, that'd be very cool. Yeah. So this box... Which distro did you end up going with? I think it's the default with DigitalOcean, which I think is Ubuntu. Right. Did you enable things on DigitalOcean, like their automatic backups or whatever, or no? Yeah, I enabled the automatic backups, and that made it really simple. I mean, I do think that like this data store should be considered sort of transient, where I don't think it's a big deal if there's a database you know, loss or something, but ideally... I'd keep all the information around for a good long time. Right. I guess that is an interesting challenge, too, that, you know, your real data is sitting there on a file system, which means, like, if that droplet were to go away, right. unless you happen to be storing that stuff on one of their black storage uh, devices, then you kind of just lose all of those files. 
like it also becomes an interesting scaling challenge. Like if you ever move to two servers, right? It's like half the files would be on one server, half on the other. Yeah, that's true. But I think they have, um, DigitalOcean has the same thing as Amazon where you can have portable hard drives kind of, and you can just keep scaling them up. Right. Yeah. They have both uh, like a block storage where you can just connect a drive to a droplet. And they also have that DigitalOcean spaces where it's like an S3 compatible object store. Yeah. Which I'll probably want to look into using something like that just to get more reliability out of it. Right. So when it came to this server, did you completely set it up by hand or did you use some type of uh, configuration management tools like Ansible or even maybe Terraform to set up the server itself? So for this project, I decided to skip doing all of that because the last side project I did, I used Terraform and Ansible and set up a Jenkins server and all that stuff. But this time I just figured it's not that hard to set up. It's one server, so I'll just SSH in and do it. Right. So you just went through the motions of apt installing Postgres and Nginx and all that stuff and just configured things? Exactly. Although I do really like Terraform, though. That tool is fantastic. Yeah, it's one of those things where I picked it up a while back, whatever, year or two years ago, and it was like a total mind blow experience. Yeah. Because I've used Ansible for like six years before that, but I've never really looked into Terraform. Uh, but then it was like, holy cow, it's like configuration management, but for your infrastructure, not just uh, <laughs> the processes on, on the machine. It was amazing. Yeah. Hopefully, I wish, or I hope that they release a kind of competitor to Ansible because that Terraform is just so well made. I'm sure if they put their minds to doing a configuration tool would be perfect. Yeah. So going uh, back to your app here, though, did you end up using Elixir releases or no? Um, I did not use Elixir releases for this because I am not sure how to use it yet. Like, I haven't done enough reading to really understand the whole release system. Right. Did you try to read that stuff in the docs and kind of just couldn't figure out what to do and then gave up or no? Oh, uh, no. And that's not like talking down to you. Like, I also don't have that much experience deploying Elixir. So oh yeah, I, I didn't find it super straightforward to deploy stuff. But there is pretty good forum posts and, and stuff like that. Yeah, that's definitely been my experience with Phoenix is a lot of the time it's kind of mysterious as to how you're supposed to actually deploy it in production. Right. So how do you have it set up now then? Do you just run like a mixed task and run your server like that? Yeah, exactly. Right. I guess can't really knock it too bad if it, if it works. Yeah, it works. And like I've even run, I think I had it running in dev mode for at least an hour or two, and it was still fine, like response time-wise and all that stuff. Right. So maybe do you want to get into what your deployment process looks like? <laughs> like from start to finish? Like let's say you're, you know, even going back to like the dev box, right? It's like, let's see that, okay, I need to add a new feature to the app and kind of just walk us through up until it gets live on the site. Um, yeah, so it looks like I start editing in Emacs and then... Um, once the, I check it locally with just uh, Mix Phoenix server, uh, once it looks good, then I just push that code up to master, although I've been trying to use branches more since now people are like looking at the project. And then um, I SSH into the machine, kill the server, bring it back up, which thankfully does not take very long. It's like five seconds of downtime per deploy. So it's not like a, it's not a great deployment pipeline, but it does work. I don't think you could even call that a deployment pipeline, I guess. I mean, it kind of is, but it's like you are the executor of the pipeline. It's like SSH in. I mean, you didn't mention this, but I guess you just 
you do like a git pull on the server before you restart it. Yep. Yeah. So did you look into using any type of CI service? Like you mentioned that you've used Jenkins in the past. Like what made you not want to use it for this project? Um, I just really wanted to skip any sort of configuration or setting up like automatic deploys or anything like that because I just wanted it to exist on the internet as soon as possible. Right. No, I think that's like a really important takeaway. Sometimes like it's more important just to get it up, see how it works, and maybe refine the process later if you care enough about the project. Yeah, exactly. Like if it keeps doing pretty decently, then I'll probably will configure like automatic deploys and that sort of thing. Right. So before you do push it up, though, do you run some type of local test suite or no? Because I didn't look at the code. I'm not sure if you even have tests. I do not. <laughs> right. Which is definitely fun because I did break it several times in production. Which, you know, it's like, of course that would happen. Right. Is that meme picture, right? I don't do any testing except uh, when I deploy to production or whatever. Yeah, exactly. So that's not great. And I definitely, for this application, I don't think I would write the tests in Phoenix. I might write them in some other sort of like end-to-end testing framework just to make sure that like, you know, all the endpoints work and that kind of thing. Right. Uh, speaking about tests, though, like let's say you did write maybe some type of unit test, you know, just because you decided you want to. Like, what type of strategy would you go about that to test all those file system rights? I am not too sure. I mean, one thing you, I could do is factor out the side effects so that at least, you know, it has like a pretty reasonable guarantee that's at least calling like file.write with the right uh, arguments. But otherwise, I'd, um, I usually prefer end-to-end tests just for making sure that the functionality is good. Right. That makes sense. Now, going back, though, to your deploy process, do you deal with any type of secrets? Like, I guess you have maybe, uh, you know, the signing key for Phoenix. Do you just commit that stuff to the version control or do you just have like an ENV file sitting somewhere? Um, so that's committed, but I'm using that the Phoenix recommended like prod.secret.exs, which uh, overwrites the secrets with like the proper keys. Okay. But that file then with your actual secret keys aren't up on GitHub then. Right, exactly. Right. So how does how does that end up getting onto your server? Do you just like do you just SCP it over? Um I just use Vim on the server to write it. Right. That's kinda interesting. So it's funny, I I've had about, I don't know, sixty of these podcast episodes recorded. And you're not the first person who just said, you know, when when it comes to secrets, I just go into my server and edit it live there. Like not even transferred from a different box. Yeah. Right? I guess uh that's pretty secure then at least it doesn't even have to sit on your dev box so if your laptop or workstation ever gets stolen no traces to be found exactly so you mentioned also before that every time you do a deploy though it does take like about five seconds for the beam to restart or you know your phoenix server to restart do you do you happen to use something like uh, system d to manage that service or no um not yet although i'd really like to learn how to like turn it in a service where it can restart itself. Yeah, if you're using Ubuntu, probably the latest uh, LTS maybe. Yeah, there's a uh, systemd unit files basically. Huh. Yeah, it's definitely something I'd like to learn more about, but I've never worked with a uh, systemd or anything like that. Right. Yeah, it's kind of cool. You just wrap it up into this one file and then it's like you can configure things like, oh, when I reboot my box, then this service will come up automatically. Or even if this service starts to die on its own, you can just have it get restart. Yeah, I mean, that would definitely be ideal because then I could just kill it and it'll restart itself faster than me doing like control C to kill it and then just typing it again. <laughs> right. 
have you even thought about maybe going uh, as far as just creating like a little shell script on your server that you can run that instead of having to manually type five commands like you just run the shell script? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I'm a big fan of like uh, bash style programming and like make files and that kind of stuff. They just seem nice. Yeah, I love that stuff too. Like it's so weird. Like shell scripting is so cryptic at times, yet so useful a lot. Like it's the glue code for almost everything that I do. Yeah. I mean, definitely still whoever decided to make the ending term for if phi, that's that's a crazy choice right there. Yeah, for sure. And some of those make file decisions are also pretty crazy. Yeah. <laughs> that syntax and that. So going back to your DigitalOcean server, do you also have DigitalOcean managing your DNS records too or no? Um, so right now, DigitalOcean doesn't manage the DNS. I'm using, what is it, DNS Simple for all of that stuff, which like owns the domain and also sets up the records. Okay. So then back to the DigitalOcean side, do you use any of their other uh, services that they have, like possibly like their firewall or no? Uh, yeah, I am actually using their firewall to, you know, block everything except HTTP, HTTPS, and SSH access. Right. Do you have the box locked down to where you can only log in as like a non-root user with like SSH keys? Exactly. Yeah. Very good choice. Uh, what about things like monitoring? Do you just use their built-in uh, monitoring tools, like their little chart dashboard? Yeah, that's the main way I've been keeping an eye on it. And it's definitely better than uh, AWS's monitoring. That stuff was always nigh unscrutable to me. But DigitalOcean makes it like really nice and easy to see kind of how the server's doing. Yeah, they really do a great job with that. I like how you can just mouse over a certain point in time and you kind of just get that little overlay of like more details about that specific time slice. Yeah, it's quite nice. Yeah, for sure. What about things like uh, dealing with logs and error reporting? Do you just kind of just look at the logs on the server as needed? Yeah. Right now it's all just on the server. I don't have a setup to like post logs to Splunk or anything like that. Right. And then like when it comes to like if Phoenix were to throw some type of error, do you get notified of that in an automated way? Or it's kind of just maybe you'll notice like an endpoint doesn't work and you go check it out on the server? Yeah, there's no automatic notifications, although that's probably something I'd want to set up too, just to send me like a Slack message, I guess. Right. So maybe now we can talk a little bit more about uh, disaster recovery and unexpected events. So you did mention that you did enable the auto backup for the DigitalOcean droplet itself. Yeah. Uh, I forget what they charge for that. What is it, like an extra 20% or something on top of the bill? But then what happens exactly with that? Uh, you just get a total backup of the entire server, right? And then you can restore it at will? Exactly. And I, I think the pricing, it, it just is not that expensive for this server because it's pretty small and it's just one server. So, you know, it's like $5 a month extra and you have some kind of security. Okay. So you mentioned you were a little bit new to DigitalOcean. Did you find their ability to send you email alerts, like if the health of the system gets maybe a little bit wacky, like CPU load goes for 80% for five minutes or you're about to run out of disk space? Oh, I did not know it can do that. But yeah, that sounds like something I should set up. Yeah, so like if you go to the droplet settings in there, there's a, a way to get notified. Like you basically set these alarms up and give an email address to get notified when this, when this thing happens and it's totally free and... It works pretty nicely. Oh, huh. Well, I'll probably do that right after this. Cool. On the topic of that, though, I mean, I don't know if this is going to be another no, but do you have any external sites monitoring 
the actual website itself, like going to the homepage to make sure you get like a status code 200? Uh, right now, there's no automated monitoring, although I think I've used Pingdom in the past and they seem to do a pretty decent job where you just really simple configuration to make sure it's not down. Right. So on the topic of uh, malicious users, maybe, do you have any type of rate limiting or throttling in place for protecting some endpoints? Uh, yeah. So right now, the only throttling in place is a very basic Nginx configuration to 10 requests a second per IP. But that's definitely not good enough where someone could still very easily and quickly create like 10,000 files of just garbage or something. And I've been looking at possibly using Cloudflare for DD, uh, DOS protection. But so far, no one's actually done anything malicious, which is wonderful. Right. Yeah, it's always nice when people are acting humane. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so Cloudflare, that's kind of cool, though. If you, I guess you just sit it in front of your app, have it take over your DNS, and then you kind of just don't really need to worry too much about, like, a DDoS attack. Yeah, but now since... Uh, what was it? Cloudflare went down and then that took off like half the internet for a while. So I wonder if there are kind of other services like Cloudflare, but you know, not Cloudflare. Yeah. It's one of those things where it's like their offering is pretty amazing, but at the same time, it's like, I always feel a little sketchy about using them because not because I don't think they're dependable. Like they really haven't gone down that much, but kind of just makes me uneasy knowing that half the internet goes through them. Like, it gives one company too much power, maybe. Yeah, plus I'm kind of, like, I'm personally curious to see how well this site performs because it doesn't have anything like caching. There's no, you know, like, static site caching. There's nothing else serving it. It's just one little server. Right. Have you gone as far as, like, throwing, like, a benchmarking tool at the application? Like, just throwing massive amounts of traffic at it? I haven't yet, although it would be interesting to use, like, uh, something like artillery to just see how it handles it. Right. I'm not familiar with that one, but is it comparable to like Siege or work? Like it just makes HTTP requests to an endpoint and it gives you like the request per second and like average latency. Exactly. Right. Is that artillery artillery one like a command line tool or is it like a, a web app? It's a command line tool for, I think it's written in JavaScript maybe, but it's just really easy to configure. Right. Yeah, I'll make sure to drop a link to that one in the show notes. Haven't heard about that one. So what would you say some of your best tips and lessons learned are from building this app? I would say some of the best tips are definitely that Phoenix is an excellent choice for doing side projects. A lesson learned would definitely be uh, make sure your Nginx configuration is correct for WebSockets because it turns out you have to do some special stuff for that and LiveView does not work without WebSockets, so... Right. Do you want to maybe get into the details of that? Like, I guess having to update to like HTTP 1.1 or whatever, like in the proxy configuration. Yep, that was the problem. <laughs> yeah, Nginx configs, fun. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Which I didn't see mentioned anywhere until, you know, I started searching. People were like, yeah, you actually have to do this. Otherwise, live views won't do anything. Right. So what, what did you do there then? You just looked at like the browser dev tools, like in the console, and you saw some error connecting, I guess, or something else? Yeah, exactly. It started throwing a lot of could not connect errors. And then Phoenix Live View, like it keeps, it tries to reconnect pretty frequently. So you can imagine across like 2000 people viewing data times all of those errors and it trying to reconnect. It was fun. Yeah, definitely. 
So speaking of that, though, do you recall any other Nginx like pitfalls or things that you ran up against where it was like, oh, man, I had to add this to my config to make it work nicely? Um, I think that was honestly the only thing where live view wasn't working correctly. I think I may have had to change a configuration in the mixed prod config to not check origins to also get cross uh, domain requests working, which was a requested feature. Right. Was that just someone who commented in the Hacker News thread? Yeah. Yeah. I didn't see that one, but that is a pretty cool feature to have. So on the opposite note of like best tips and lessons learned, do you recall making some mistakes during this week that you developed this app and then you kind of figured like, wow, you know, I have to go back and fix this or, you know, you fixed it and you learned something about it, like besides the Nginx stuff? Yeah, definitely. I think uh, the kind of mistakes I made were definitely not having uh, end-to-end tests already set up before launching it because I was trying to add the read-only hashes kind of live on the production server. And I think I caused like 20 minutes or so of downtime trying to figure out why it wasn't working. And like every time I tried to restart it, it got messed up. And then I also ran into problems with uh, the prod database secret being wrong so that migrations would fail. And then I just have to revert and like bring it back up again really quickly. (laughs) Yeah, it definitely sounds like a fun time there. Yeah, it was very hectic and I was very relieved when it fell off the front page because I was like, whoo, not can relax. Right. So we were actually deploying then, like besides that point where things were down when you didn't want it to be down, but were you just sitting there adding like cool features to the app and restarting things while it was still on the front page? Yep. Very cool. So Ian, thanks a lot for coming on the Running in Production podcast. It was really great having you on. Yeah, it was wonderful chatting with you as well. Yeah, so before we wrap this up, do you want to share any links to your site, Twitter, GitHub profile, anything like that? Um, I don't really have any links besides textdb.dev. Um, there you'll find links to the source code if you want to deploy it for your own means or to do whatever you want with it. And uh, I don't really have like a Twitter or anything else to share, though. Okay, cool. And on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running In Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.